The mortgage industry never stays still. With interest rates moving, companies changing, and regulation increasing, there's always another story. This is The Principle, where we break it down daily and take a deeper dive into the issues. I'm Christine Stewart, Editorial Director for the Mortgage News Network. Let's pay it down. But first, a word from our sponsors. Mortgage Women Magazine. It's where women's voices are heard. Find it free at www.mortgagewomenmagazine.com. The market is down, and that means you're likely focused on finding sales and turning them quickly. But if you get tunnel vision, you can leave yourself vulnerable to fraud. Welcome to The Principal. I'm Mike Savino, head of multimedia for the Mortgage News Network. And today I'm joined by Andrew Leipit. He's founder and CEO of Secure Insights. Andrew, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. So we keep seeing a move towards technology um, because it's certainly easier for customers and it can make the the loan writing process uh, much more efficient. I think sometimes people assume, you know, with that comes, you know, various levels of security. But when it comes to, you know, fraud risks and trying to protect yourself from from scams, uh, are we seeing that play out? Are we seeing that uh, technology is leading to protection, or are we still seeing risks? Well, I think it, I think it depends on who you're talking to. I think you know major banks um, they're under far more regulatory scrutiny and more often, and so and they have the assets and the trained staff to really deal with these kinds of things. Um, I think where you're finding the lag is with the independent mortgage bankers um, and and even the brokers. Uh, because they're just not trained to deal with this type of thing. I mean, their focus is really on originating and selling loans. And not that compliance isn't important, but they tend not to um, focus on compliance as strongly as the um, you know, national federally chartered banks, uh, major banks do. And so um, I think that makes them more prone to being victims to um, all different types of cyber fraud. Where, what, so, you know, is, and, and with, with technology, with engaging customers in new ways, is that something to be mindful of too? Is that, of course, you're opening yourself up to fraudsters who may not even come into your bank. Uh, there's new ways to, uh, for fraudsters to also get into the process. Well, cyber fraud really is the key thing that we're talking about here, and it's become a major problem, not just in the banking industry, but in the entire online, you know, digital world that we live in. Um, but talking specifically about the banking industry, it's, it's a major problem. The three key things that I think that you find um, that independent mortgage bankers have to be concerned about are spoofing, phishing, and hacking. And I don't want to get into a long description, but just to give you a brief summary of what that means. So spoofing is kind of what they call the man in the middle attack. That's where somebody is able to, to um, get into a, a company's system and they're able to disguise themselves as a party to a transaction. And then they typically will change some information like wiring instructions. And so banks employees don't notice because there's a, um, duplicate uh, email address with a little bit of a difference. So instead of ABC title, uh, you know, John at ABC title.com, it's John at ABC title co.com. And with 
processors and underwriters and closers doing so many loans, um, you know, it can be very easy to simply misidentify uh, the recipient. And so that's the spoofing or man in the middle. And that that is a big one for banks. Um, and it also can affect, by the way, uh, borrowers and sellers, attorneys, title agents, anyone to the process. But the key is someone illegally accesses, gets, learns what's going on in our transactions and pretends to be someone that they're not. The second uh, issue is phishing. And phishing is where you, know, you have spear phishing, you have whaling, but essentially what it is is uh, an outside actor targets a specific company. Usually it is trying to get them to click on a link or access something that's going to take them somewhere in which they're going to then get access, you know, the, the bad actor is going to get access to their system, or they're going to be a victim of, for example, ransomware. And, and that's that could be a serious problem. We've seen in the past people paying enormous amounts of money to be able to reaccess their systems because a ransomware attack could freeze your entire operating system in your business. And then the third, the third aspect is, is what we call hacking. So hacking is essentially unauthorized access to a system, it's usually done surreptitiously. The idea is to capture and extract confidential data. So banks are basically facing, and there are all kinds of variations on these, but it's the spoofing, phishing, hacking attacks that they really have to prepare for. Um, and in order to do that, there's technology that you can implement, there's training that needs to be done, you know, and there is corrective action that needs to take place. So you really need to have a way to plan and address this and um, test it on a regular basis. That regular basis thing sounds like that's what's really important here, right? Um, because, you know, anybody obviously who who buys their own, you know, uh, antivirus software, it's constantly being updated. Cell phones are constantly being updated for security purposes because every time you think you have a new fix, eventually these scammers will find a way around it. So you, you have to constantly stay up on this, right? You you Any software you have, you have to make sure you have the latest versions because there are always new versions that come out that improve their ability to prevent attacks. Um, you need to do penetration testing to, to see whether or not, uh, you know, there are tools that you can buy and implement to see whether or not people are trying to uh, attack you. For example, in our company, we we can see outside actors trying to get in and being blocked, and then we can take measures in order to counter that and improve it. <clears throat> we also test our, our employees because a lot that's 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 where the weakness is in many cases, is you have an employee who opens up a file that they shouldn't have or responds to an email they shouldn't have or, you know, and so you can, you have to constantly test people. We do testing in our company uh, silently, quietly, so the employees don't even know it. So they will receive something that, you know, on the surface is, you know, a phishing attack or spoofing or whaling, but it's really generated by us to see how they respond. And this way we can gauge whether or not we need to retrain. And, and you know, I think, you know, if you think of fraud traditionally, particularly within mortgage and, and finance more in general, it's people maybe trying to get loans that they wouldn't meet the standards of, or, you know, they're using somebody as part of a scheme to, to get mortgages for some ulterior motive. Uh, we even write all the time about uh, brokers and, and others in this industry who are getting arrested and, and reaching settlements with the Department of Justice. 
uh, for for multi million dollar mortgage fraud schemes. But some of the stuff you laid out with with phishing um, and and with with hacking, it sounds like the end game may be more customer data. And of course, that's not a new thing trying to steal personal information. But with with the rise of of some of the stuff you're talking about in recent years, is that the the bigger threat? Is is people trying to get customer data, or you just have to sort of be on the lookout for for all kinds of fraud? I, I would say that the 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 traditional fraud has always been the biggest problem. So fraud for housing and fraud for profit, and in a down market like we're in now, studies show that lenders are seven times more likely to be subject to that type of fraud. So as you describe, you know, straw buyers, uh, builder bailout, bailout, foreclosure bailout, um, on the buyer side, you know, income fudging and all kinds of other things. You know, especially now, I think you have, a, there's a, um, there's a, not a, a tendency, but a, a, you know, people are more inclined to try to force that square peg into a round hole and make a loan work. And do they maybe manipulate things in order to get the loan done only to have it become a a default or a defect later. So those have always been a problem for the mortgage industry. I've been doing this for 30 years. Nothing has changed. Those issues still happen. That's your garden variety fraud. There, the, that's the thing that I think lenders always have to be aware of. These types of the cyber fraud I'm talking about, the frequency of them is less, but the impact can be greater, right? So one bad cyber attack, one bad wire fraud you know, sent to the wrong place could put a company out of business. If you're talking about, you know, somebody steals a couple loans and it's a million dollars, not many independent mortgage bankers have a million dollars in cash right now that they could settle those types of of issues. So, you know, I would say that we never have to take our eye off the ball from the traditional types of fraud, but the sophistication in the cyber area is something that really has to be taken care of, not the least of which because there are now more regulations for data privacy and consumer protection that are going to hold banks accountable. So I, I think right now there's, I, and I could be wrong, but I think there's six states now that have adopted significant new data privacy and consumer protection laws, Colorado, Connecticut, California, Utah, Virginia, and New York. California is a big one. CCPA has been around for a while. New York adopted one recently. But these are putting a squeeze on all banks and independent mortgage bankers even greater, as I mentioned before, because they tend not to have the staff and the expertise and the the, the ability to really deal with these things, but they're going to be held accountable. Now, there's a good reason for that, right? Because banks do collect a significant amount of non-public consumer information. They have name, address, social security number, date of birth, places where they work. They have information about their, you know, if they're divorced and they're getting child support and there's also they have their assets and, and everything in one place. And it's being accessed by their employees. It's being sent to the closing table, which is one of the things my company is most concerned about is the settlement professionals have access to all that, notaries, title agents, escrow officers, and so on. And there's a tremendous opportunity in that for that information to be stolen and to be misused. And so I think that um, independent mortgage bankers, they can't take the buy off the, buy their eye off the traditional mortgage fraud, but they really, really need to get up to speed on the cyber issues that can affect them and the regulatory pressures that can come down on them if they don't properly manage consumer data, uh, consumer data. 
Yeah. And as you laid out the kind of information, it's not just a lot. It's some of the most valuable information that someone can get if they're trying to either just steal your your money or, you know, steal your identity and, and do things with with your credit. Don't miss the largest regional mortgage show in the nation. The New England Mortgage Expo returns to Mohegan Sun in Connecticut, January 12th and 13th. See us at www.nemortgageexpo.com. Start your year with the best connections in the industry. Dozens of sessions, scores of exhibitors. It's where success is written every hour. www.nemortgageexpo.com. Um, what are, what are some, you know, you, you referenced, you know, the, the major banks, you know, they obviously have entire units dedicated to this stuff. If I'm, if I'm an independent banker, uh, or, or I'm a broker just running my own small little shop, how, how can I look at my system and, and recognize I, I need help here? Obviously, you know, I get into this industry to, to help people get homes or get other lines of, of credit, um, and, and there's varying degrees of, of tech savviness with with people in this industry. How can I look at my system and realize, you know, I need help or I, I'm in a good place and I just need to make sure that I'm staying up on things? Well, I think you need to do a survey of your business operations. What type of non-public information do we gather? Who sees it? Where is it stored? And start there. And and in most cases, you're going to find it's a significant amount of data. So then the question is. You know, what controls do we have in place as to who has access to it? Who has the right to see it? You know, years ago, I used to get crazy um, as a regulatory counsel and, and general counsel representing banks, where loan officers used to take their laptops home with them, filled with information about borrowers. And I remember at least a few instances in my career where people had their cars broken into and the laptop stolen. Well, that's like, you're handing somebody, you know, all that information in a way that should have been managed. In the old days, we talked about locked filing cabinets and, you know, whatever. Now we're talking about things like renewing passwords on your on your uh, computer. We're talking about, you know, uh, uh, you know, timing out your your uh, screen so that nobody can see it after a while, or having screen protectors, especially people working from home. That's even a bigger issue, right? Because if someone's in the office, they can be supervised. Someone's working from home. Who knows who has access to that in a home? <clears throat> who knows who's living there, who, who can see anything? So I think <clears throat> people have to look at that type of thing. They're all, I don't want to recommend any particular vendor, um, but there are a lot of vendors out there that will do penetration testing, that will come in and, and look at, um, do an internal controls analysis and tell you whether or not you're you, um, you know, meet standards. Um, we're seeing that more and more, particularly with cyber liability insurance coverage. I just read an article today on LinkedIn that said um, that uh, there are some cyber liability insurers who are saying they may not be able to continue to provide this coverage because there's so many claims being filed. Um, I don't believe that, <laughs> but I think that there will be more controls put in place. And I just happen to be talking to one of the largest uh, insurance agents in the United States uh, this morning. And what they've done is that they've retained companies to do an analysis. So before they give you cyber liability coverage, they're going to come in and they're going to look at you and they're going to tell you where the holes are. And they're going to tell you whether you are a safe enough bet to be insured. So there's a lot of tools out there, a lot of vendors out there. My company specializes in doing uh, wire fraud prevention. So we're we're making sure that wires are going to the right place and identities are verified and that type of thing, uh, primarily for independent mortgage bankers and warehouse banks. 
Um, but, you know, so there's a lot of vendors out there that can can address these types of things. It's the awareness, education and awareness. People need to understand what the issues are. They need to evaluate their business operations. They need to have compliance people be focused on this issue and they need to take it seriously. So that's a long winded answer. But, you know, there's a lot in that. But uh, I, hopefully it's helpful. Yeah, and certainly reiterating the importance of some of these things as annoying as as you know two-factor authentication and, and some of those steps are and so right. it's, it's always better than the alternative and finding out how easily somebody may be figuring out your password um at la the last thing i wanted to ask you about is you know if somebody finds themselves uh, on uh, the victim of a cyber attack and obviously you know, it'll be different based on whether it's, it's, you know, somebody taking, you know, a ransom attack and, and a denial of service versus uh, somebody doing a phishing scam and, and getting a virus into your system to try to steal data. Generally speaking, you know, if suddenly I realized something happened, uh, you know, somebody broke in, did something to our system and, in, in, you know, in an attack in some way, what should we do? I mean, obviously, you know, you may have a hacker who's saying, pay me this money and I'll leave you alone. But, you know, you can't you can't necessarily trust that it's that simple. And of course, it's expensive. What what should you do if you find yourself on the receiving end of an attack? Well, you know, ransomware is such a specialized thing. I mean, that's a business decision about whether you want to pay to release your files or not. I don't want to get into that. But what I will talk about is that you need to have a business continuity plan for anything. So every company should have a business continuity plan that uh, determines, well, if this happens, then what? So it's not just ransomware, but anything can shut down your company. It could be bad weather. It could be your technology platform folds. You could get a, any of, any kind of virus. Um, you could you know, have a COVID knocked people out because, you know, couldn't work for a period of time. There was adjustments. So you need to have a business continuity plan. What do we do if? The second thing I would uh, uh, advise folks is if you do have any kind of data breach, you need to be very aware of the legal and regulatory requirements for notification. So if consumers' information has been accessed, you need to promptly and in a transparent way advise people that their information has been compromised, what information has been compromised, and what they can do to protect themselves. We have seen cases recently uh, where large companies failed to notify people for a long period of time, and there were significant fines and penalties, and, and, uh, you know, six, hundreds of millions of dollars because of the failure to notify people. And, and, and so it's not, it's not just seeing, watching everything, it's when and if something happens, being able to respond appropriately. So you have to respond quickly, decisively, and you have to notify people because their livelihoods can be impacted. And the more you wait, the greater the potential harm could be to someone with their information. <clears throat> and of course, you know, law enforcement should be notified. Yeah, no, I, you, the notification part is really important, as you touched on. Some of the settlements that we've seen, they can grow exponentially when you're not keeping the, when you're not doing what's best for the consumer in the end, and you're trying to maybe cover yourself and hide the fact that there's been an attack. You know, that, that's that's when you and really. And this is not an easy thing, right? I mean, there is no foolproof protection. I mean, just I think last month, one of the largest uh, student loan servicing companies was was hacked. 
you know, and and their data was being bled for, I think, like several six months or more. I don't remember the exact period of time, but it was a long period of time. And until they discovered it. Now, that's a huge company dealing with millions of pieces of personal information, including like the most sensitive information, social security numbers and so on. And it was all lost through a hacking event. So if a company like that can be attacked, you could imagine, you know, smaller company, it's much easier for a hacker to get in. So it's there's no foolproof method, but what you, you need to have a plan. You need to know where you are. You need to have controls in place. And you need to know that when something does happen, that you need to have proper transparency and notification uh, rules in place. Yeah, and they certainly, these hackers, some of them can be very proficient in their attempts because all they need is one to break through one employee who's maybe not exactly uh, paying attention to what they're doing. Um, so they can they can make yeah. massive amount of attempts and one one will pay off for them. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, so while I have you, is there anything else that you wanted to add? Um, well, I mean, you know, this is not supposed to be a commercial. So, it, you know, I think um, <clears throat> trying to think what else. I mean, the, the whole cyber insurance issue, I think, mm -hmm. is a big area. Uh, one of the... Um, one of the things I think government has to get its arms around is that there is a disparity in requirements across the 50 states for professionals to have insurance. So because we review insurance as part of our risk assessment of professionals. <clears throat> so you look at attorneys, title agents, escrow officers, notaries. Those are our key people that we're looking at as vendors. There's no there's no consistent rule as to whether or not to be need to be insured or not. I mean, I don't know if you realize this, but like I'm a lawyer in New Jersey, Connecticut, and New New York. None of those states require me to have E&O. That's not required. <laughs> I mean, I think it'd be stupid not to operate with it, but it's not required. Some states have fidelity bond coverage for criminal acts, but they're like $50,000. I mean, it's not even, it bears no relationship to the type of harms that could happen today. Um, the cyber liability is not required. I mean, even among the independent mortgage bankers, they're only starting to, to wake up and say, you know what, we only want to do business with people who have cyber coverage, but most of them aren't even asking for it. And so it's not required. Uh, and then the other thing is insurance is very complicated. So one E&O policy doesn't look like the next and one cyber policy doesn't look like another one. And so it's hard for bankers to you know, get a, the copy of a policy and even know what it means. I mean, some of them collect these policies and I really don't even know why they're collecting them because they don't they are not reading them and they can't tell the difference between one or the other. They're not tracking whether they're being canceled or not. They're not even tracking whether payments are being made. These are all some things that we do. But it's, it's so it's, you know, the whole insurance area to me is ripe for um, uh, being revised. I really think there should be a standardized requirement for insurance and bonding in, in this area. Um, and I think if you do that, you will weed out the people who only do this once in a while because they cause a lot of the problems by making mistakes and so on. And the folks who do this on a regular basis, they will, you know, make sure they have the proper coverage that if there's an event, there is some place to go to recover. Uh, because that's the other thing. If you have a loss, it's only a loss, you know, it, it doesn't. You, until you get a recovery, you still have a harm, right? So if there's no source to recover from, 
you're out of pocket. So having standardized insurance and bonding requirements would at least give some level of comfort to consumers and lenders that whoever they're doing business with will have uh, someone to step up and help cover any harm that might eventually happen. And, you know, just to drill down on that little bit, if if I'm if I'm an independent banker and I, and I want to look for for some liability insurance or or thinking about this with with the vendors that I work with, should I be more focused on the limits and the coverage or should I be focused on the kinds of things and the language that's in these policies? You know, when you look and people don't know what they're getting, where do you see the, the biggest problems that maybe people aren't looking at or don't understand? Well, I think limits are important. I think bankers should have a standard, uh, you know, that they will accept. Um, I think a million dollars coverage is the basic standard that most folks have in E&O. <clears throat> I think if um, you have a lot less than that, that can be a potential red flag. Um, and I think that you have to make sh- be careful about reviewing the exclusions from coverage. Uh, we've seen policies that specifically exclu- excluded any representation of banks. So if it's determined that if you're a fiduciary for a bank at a closing, you know, following the closing instructions, there may be no, an exclusion in coverage if there's a loss. Uh, we also noticed uh, a few years ago that um, Massachusetts started um, issue, policies being issued in Massachusetts starting excluding any coverage for cyber loss whatsoever. And I think the reason for that is they wanted to try to drive people into buying separate cyber coverage, which they eventually started doing. So um, I think, yeah, I mean, the coverage limits are important. Whether or not it's paid in full or being financed is another issue, especially with E&O. E&O is what they call a claims-made type of policy. It doesn't matter if the policy is in full force and effect today. If I cause a harm a week from now and the policy's lapsed, there's no coverage. So the, the policy has to be in effect at the date of the incident number one. So you have to kind of track it to make sure it's not been canceled and it's been paid. That's a difficult thing to do. These are all things that we do. It's very hard for banks to do this. Uh, but, th- but you know, and then if it's financed, you know, cyber policy is very expensive today. Even for a small firm, you could be talking in terms of, you know, three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000, which may not seem like a lot to a big company, but if you're like a one or two man operation, that's a lot of money. And so they may finance that, you know, we pay $300 a month or whatever. But the importance of that is if you stop making payments after four months, guess what? The policy's canceled. And that's a lot different than if you paid in full up front because now you have 12 months of coverage. So these are types of things that we look at in analyzing and a, and a mortgage bank, if they wanted to get into that level of detail, could. Um, but like I said, it's it really... The more we get into these details, the more we start taking away from their focus, which is originating and selling loans. You know, I've talked to a lot of um, mortgage lenders recently with this downturn. The reason there's a lot of consolidation going on now is because people are saying we have to carry this huge, you know, in- infrastructure of compliance and legal and and quality control people and so on and so forth and marketing and whatever. And it's just killing us. If we consolidate, we can, you know, save costs. So, uh, you know, adding more and more of these uh, compliance rules and regulations, while it's very good for protecting the consumer, it makes it's very onerous, especially for independent mortgage uh, bankers. 
you know, when their profit margins have shrunk to, and their volume is off 50, 60%, they start looking at these things saying, should I really be doing that? My answer is yes, because if you get a harm, you're going to be sorry you didn't have it. But I can certainly understand why they're looking at it and saying, we can't carry this load. It's just, it's just too much. Yeah, it's like any other kind of insurance where you sit here and you say, yeah, you know, I'm healthy. My house is safe. I don't need this. And then the moment you need it, you need it. Yeah. So, uh, Christmas you don't, Eve, you don't I had be... a sewer backup in my house. You know, who would imagine, right? It's that type of thing. You buy a house and you're like, oh, you know, everything will be fine. And then one day you wake up and, you know, you have a, a problem and you're so thankful that you have homeowner's insurance, you know. So, you know, uh, having protections in place. Um, is you know you don't you don't want to uh, buy an umbrella when it starts to rain you know and there's like an old Mark Twain saying about uh, about that um, but uh, you know you want to be prepared for the day that it does rain so absolutely Andrew thank you so much for your insight thank you we'll be right back with the rest of your headlines the Originator Connect Network. The nation's largest producer of mortgage events is about fostering a community founded on professionalism, collaboration, and personal and professional growth, connecting you to the story of your success. Welcome back. Here's your headlines for today, January 3rd. We'll start with some good news for your buyers, which of course means good things for you too. November saw home prices increase by just under 9% year over year. That breaks a 21-month streak of double-digit gains. But we also have some sad news to report today as Regina Lowry has died. The New Jersey mortgage industry veteran was a pioneer, becoming the first woman to chair the Mortgage Bankers Association in 2005. Prior to that, she was the first woman to lead the NBA's Greater Philadelphia chapter. She accumulated a ton of honors and awards over more than 40 years, including being part of our first list of the most powerful women in mortgage banking in 2019. The New Jersey MBA chapter says some friends found her dead in her home on New Year's Day. A cause of her death has not been announced publicly. This has been The Principal, a Mortgage News Network podcast. All podcasts are produced by T.G. Kutamperor, Matthew Mullins, and Sarah Woolock. Mike Savino is head of multimedia, and Christine Stewart is editorial director. The opening theme was Status by Jamie Bathgate, and the music you hear now is Glossy by Skygaze. You can find episodes of The Principal at www.mortgagenewsnetwork.com, or you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate and review so that others can find us. Thanks for listening.